0: But, uh, okay, for those of you who don't know, I'm Charles McConnell. (laughs) I'm uh, from here in Irving, originally from Kansas City. So, uh, there, there's the introduction that you get. Uh, Not a lot of special education or anything, but uh, just me, okay. Uh, Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning, as always. I really enjoy our time together. Um, Just really want to give a little shout-out. Brother Terry, the class this morning was just really special and uh, thank you so much for leading that. Um, one of the things that I've said before, and I'll continue to say, uh, I just believe that uh, we have been blessed with some of the finest uh, teachers anywhere uh, right here at this, uh, this little church right here in Irving, and so I'm really greatly appreciative for, the, uh, for just really the knowledge and this, the, the life of the men that, uh, that often stand before us, and I think it's really a blessing uh, that we have them here um, with us here at Irving. Uh, if you're visiting here with us this morning, uh, thank you for coming and sharing in this hour of worship with us here today. Uh, just really a blessing to have you with us and certainly hope that you'll be blessed by your time here uh, with us as well. Uh, just really appreciate our praise team always just for leading us in our, uh, in our time of worship and praise. Uh, really special. I always enjoy the song, uh oh praise the name of the lord our god uh we will praise his name for endless days we will praise his name the lord the lord our god and i uh, just really enjoy that just really so uh, greatly expresses uh just the praise and honor that the lord our god is due and we certainly hope and pray that we can do that here uh at the irving church um i'm gonna tell you a little something about the PowerPoint. Uh, not one of my gifts. Uh, so basically it's just some scripture that I thought I'd just share and I'm going to read most of them. And so I just get them there for you to kind of follow along. I haven't put them all there, but if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 19, that's going to be the basis of our sermon today. And if you'll turn there and then whatever ones other than that, I think I probably put them in the PowerPoint for you as well. Uh, let's just start with a little prayer and then we'll continue on. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this day. Father, we just really want to thank you, Father, for our time together and worship of you. Heavenly Father, as we dive into a little study of your word, dear God, I just pray, Lord, just for wisdom, dear Father, guide my tongue, guide my thoughts, dear Lord. We just pray, dear Father, that, uh, that the words that we share today uh, will just be beneficial, that they would draw us closer to you and help us to understand more about who you are. Who you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the principles that we uh, learned in our inductive Bible study seminar uh, was that it's really often helpful for us to kind of divide a book up into its major divisions, or I think we talked about the scenes, if you will, and uh, that's kind of really. Uh, helpful for us, especially in this Exodus study that we're going through right now. You know, in the beginning of our study of Exodus, I think it was Luke who introduced the three major divisions that take place uh, in this book. Uh, Chapters 1 through 18 are the liberation, or really kind of focus on the liberation of the people of Israel, the rescue, if you will, from Egyptian slavery. Uh, Chapters 19 through chapters 25 are going to kind of really begin to focus on the covenant and the giving of the law. And then chapter 25, all the way through the end, uh, talk about really focus on the building of the tabernacle and the worship of God, how the children of Israel are going to direct their worship of Almighty God. Well, this morning, we're going to begin to focus on this second major division, beginning with chapter 19. We're going to begin to talk about the covenant when after a journey that has lasted about two months, Israel arrives at Mount Sinai. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, Mount Sinai, or is often called Mount Horeb, is often regarded as one of the most significant landmarks in Scripture. Uh, Even before the events here in chapter 19, back in chapter 3, you remember that God appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai in a burning bush and it was there where god called moses to lead the children of israel and then in first kings chapter 18 the prophet elijah uh there he challenged uh 450 prophets of baal to a contest if you will to see whose god whether the lord god or baal would answer by fire. And of course, we know how that turned out. Anytime God is challenged, God is going to show up in a mighty way. And he did so in 1 Kings chapter 18. And then in the following chapter, in 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, Elijah hid himself in a cave on Mount Sinai from the wicked queen Jezebel. And of course, it was there where the Lord spoke to Elijah, the Bible tells us, in a still small voice. Mount Sinai is also uh, referenced a couple of times in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 4 and also in Hebrews chapter 12, which we'll talk about just a little bit later on in our talk. And so Mount Sinai, once again, and it's also referred to as the mountain of God. We see it referred in that way also in scripture. We see that it's a very significant landmark in the Bible. Now, one of the points that has been made several times throughout our study is that prior to the events in Exodus, it seems like the people of Israel uh, really didn't have an experiential knowledge of God. They really didn't know who God was. They'd been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and it seems as though God had basically been silent during that period. But now God has introduced himself in a very powerful way to the people of Israel. Uh, He freed them from slavery by a series of plagues upon the Egyptians. Uh, He destroys the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. He guides the people of Israel with a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of cloud by night. Uh, He feeds them with manna from heaven, and he gave them water from a rock. He gave them uh, a victory in battle against the Amalekites. And so we see that in each of these events, God has very powerfully and wonderfully uh, introduced himself to the people of Israel. And now, after this journey of about two months, he has led them to the base of Mount Sinai, which is where we're going to start this morning. Now, the Bible tells us, uh, beginning in verse 1, uh, the Bible says, well, let's just start in verse 3. Um, It says, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God in these words here, he offers to the Israelites the opportunity to enter into a covenant with him. He reminds them of how he rescued them from Egypt. And he says that I brought you to myself. In other words, Uh, You know, God didn't set the people of Israel free just to be on their own and do their own thing. And, you know, certainly we could probably surmise that that could have been the case, that after they were freed from bondage, that he could have just left them out there to establish their own uh, laws, their own government, and be their own sort of people. But the Bible says that he brought them to himself. In other words, the purpose of that was to establish a special covenant relationship with the people of Israel. Verse 5 and 6, God sets forth the conditions of this special covenant relationship, saying, Obey my voice and keep my covenant. This was to be Israel's part in this relationship with God. Obey my voice and keep my covenant. And in return, God says, you will be a treasured possession among all people. You will be a kingdom of priests, and you will be a holy nation. In other words, a nation separate and set apart from all others. The question might well be asked, what did Israel do to deserve all of this? Why were they God's chosen people? What did they do to deserve this great honor? Well, the answer very simply is nothing. They didn't do anything to deserve this great honor. This was God's sovereign choice in response to the covenant that he made with Abraham and his descendants hundreds of years earlier. You know, back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, look at verses 6 through 9. Notice that uh, Moses says here, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, much like he's already expressed in Exodus chapter 19. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Notice verse eight, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh the king. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. When we look at that passage, it tells us basically that there are two essential factors that cause the Israelites to be chosen out of all the nations of the earth. Number one was God's love, He says here it was his steadfast love, his continual love, but then also it was God's faithfulness. And it's wonderful for us to know, and it's very encouraging for us to know that our God, he is a faithful God. You know, matter of fact, the prophet says, great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. So great is the faithfulness of of our God, and he keeps his covenant He keeps his word. You know, basically, if we think about it, the Israelites hadn't really known God. They hadn't been really praying to God as we can really see as we know it. As far as we know, they weren't toiling away in slavery, just waiting for God to show up and choose them out of all the nations on the earth. They really didn't do anything. It was all about God's love and God's faithfulness. And you know, when we think about it, that really sounds a lot like our story, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like our story because, you know, we really don't do anything to, in, to deserve the, lo- the love and the favor that God sheds upon us. You know, matter of fact, in Ephesians, Paul says that, uh, you know, it's by grace or that is unmerited, undeserved favor that you're saved. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, it's not our doing It is the doing of God, and such it was for the nation of Israel as well. God was going to uh, give them this special covenant relationship, not because of them, but because of God, but because of God. Now, not only were the Israelites chosen to be God's treasured possession, but they were also to be, as the Bible tells us, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. Well, what does that mean? Well, the chief purpose or the primary purpose of a priest is to act as an intermediary or a middleman, so to speak. The priest's primary function was to represent God before the people. And thus, when we think about Israel as a nation, they were to be the nation through which all the world would be introduced to the one true and living God. That was their purpose. They were to be this nation of priests that were to show the glorious works of God through to the nations. You know, Peter borrowed this verse, and we read it earlier. Uh, it seems that he borrowed the thoughts of this passage uh, to describe our standing as followers of Jesus Christ. Once again, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once again, sounds a whole lot like uh, Exodus chapter 19, doesn't it? Sounds a whole lot like like the Israelites. Uh, The Bible tells us here that in Jesus Christ we become God's chosen, we become his treasured possession. And we are his royal priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests. And our role as priests is, as Peter says, is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness of sin and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, over and over again, we see that the story of Israel in Exodus is our story as followers of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed from the slavery of sin. We are chosen to be God's treasure and possession. We are a kingdom of priests, or a royal priesthood, as Peter put it, and we have been called by God to be a holy nation. Beloved, Israel is now us. Israel is now us. And so today, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are the Israel of God. You don't have to be born jewish uh, nor do you have to uh, become a convert to judaism you are indeed the israel of god notice what paul said in romans chapter 2 28 and 29 he said for no one who is a jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical but a jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter, in other words, not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, very simply, he is saying, because the Spirit of God dwells within us, we become the Israel of God. It's not a matter of outward birth or outward circumcision or anything like that, beloved, because of Jesus Christ. We have become the Israel of God. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 19, you remember the response that the children of Israel gave to Moses uh, once they had heard the words of God: "All that the Lord has spoken, we will do." And Moses reported the words of the people to God: "All of the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do." Well, that that sounded good. Uh, I think they certainly had the right answer. That was that was the right answer. Uh, You know, God says, you know, keep my covenant and keep my laws. You say, well, yeah, Lord, we're going to do everything that you say. That's what you say to a holy and righteous and almighty God. But we all know how the story goes. It would only be a matter of days before the people of Israel would break the second of the Ten Commandments by fashioning a golden calf and worshiping that image. When the people spoke those words, all that God has said, we will do. I certainly believe that they had good intentions. I'm pretty sure that they really wanted to keep their part of the covenant. But beloved, the problem is that they were no more capable of complete obedience that the law required and that God desires than you or I would be. Notice what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 27 through verse 29. This is interesting. I found this passage. You know, um, the people had already kind of made Moses their spokesperson, and they told Moses to, to go and talk to God, and whatever God says, you bring it back to us. So Deuteronomy 5, verse 27, go near and hear all the words that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And once again, they said, Yeah, we'll listen and we're going to do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. God says, oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God says very simply, I wish that the people always had the heart to fear me and keep my commandments. In other words, I wish they always had that attitude that we're going to listen to God and we're going to do what he says. I wish they always had that commitment. They always had that zeal, that strong desire to keep all of my commandments. God said, oh, that they had a heart to do that. You see, obedience is a matter of the heart. It really is, isn't it? Because, you know, there's a couple of ways that we can obey anybody. We can either do it willingly because it's in our hearts to do that, Or we can do it because we're forced to do it. The Israelites worked for the Egyptians because they had no choice. They obeyed the Pharaoh because they had no choice. Well, now they got a choice. They can obey God if their heart is right. If it's in their heart to obey God. And you know, sometimes that's really the case with us as well. The Israelites were no different from us because sometimes, you know, our heart is weak. I know that's the case with me. Sometimes my heart is stubborn. Sometimes my heart is selfish. Sometimes I have a greedy heart. And as a result, I don't always do what I'm supposed to do. And so it was with the Israelites. They didn't keep that commitment that they were going to always keep god's commandments and so beloved it's like i said before their story is our story notice what paul said in romans chapter 7 uh verses 21 through 23 paul said so i find it to be a law that when i want to do right evil lies close at hand he said for i delight in the law of god in my inner being but i see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, essentially, what Paul is saying is something that we all have kind of struggled with in the past. I want to do right, but sometimes I do wrong because sometimes the flesh is strong and sometimes it just wages war within my, within my spirit. That's really what happens to us. And so, and I think we believe that that's exactly what happened with the children of Israel. They probably wanted to keep God's law. They really intended at that point in time to keep their commitment to do everything that God said, but it just didn't work out that way. Paul describes a condition prior to a deliverance from sin through Jesus Christ. And I want us to understand that that Paul is describing the condition before Jesus Christ. This is a before and after picture. You know, like you see sometimes on the commercials, there's a before and after. Before, look, before looks pretty bad, doesn't it? Before the cosmetic surgery, before the cleanup happens, and then after, everything starts to look pretty good. And you know, here's the after for us. In Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul says, therefore, there's therefore now no con- condemnation For those who are in christ jesus that's the after there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in christ jesus from the law of sin and death for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You know, it just seems like in every case when mankind has had a problem, when there's been an issue that mankind very simply couldn't overcome, God steps in and God makes it right, doesn't he? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God stepped in And he gives us an answer to our sin problem. Get back to Exodus 19 and 9 through 15. The Bible says that when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And so Moses went down from from the mountain to the people, and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So why all this preparation? And why were the people forbidden to touch or even approach the mountain? Much could be said about all of this, but I really think that the main thing that this passage is conveying to us is the holiness of our God. The holiness of God. You know, the term holy uh, simply means to be set apart. Uh, We can think of it as the idea of being separate, or we might really kind of simply say being special. When we apply the term to God, God is holy. God is set apart in his character, in his power, in his wisdom, in his purity in every attribute, our God is holy in every way he is set apart from us. And that no one was to come near the mountain was a picture of the distance between a holy God and sinful man. The glory of God was to descend upon Mount Sinai. And for the people just to come near his presence meant that there had to be consecration or we might think of it as preparation and so Moses told the people that you were to wash your garments they were to abstain from intimacy and they were to make themselves ready just to approach the edge of the mountain and you know we can think about it just like back in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was on Mount Sinai. As he approached the burning bush, God said, take off your sandals from on your feet because the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. And so it shows us that when we approach a holy God, we don't just come any kind of way. There has to be consecration or preparation. You remember... Later in our study series, we'll be talking more about the tabernacle or the tent of meaning, as it's also called, that God would tell the people of Israel to construct. You know, and that was going to be a place uh, where their worship centered around the tabernacle, if you will. And notice what he says about it in Exodus chapter 29 and verse 43. He says that this tent of meaning, he says, it shall be... uh, At the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, he says, Where I will meet with you to speak to you there, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Notice he says that I'm going to meet the people of Israel there, and he says it's going to be sanctified, set apart, it's going to be special because his glory was going to be present there. And so because the very glory of God would be present in the tabernacle, nobody could just walk in there any time, any way. Only the priests who were consecrated or prepared the way God told them to prepare, only the priests could go in there and offer their service. And then, of course, we'll read later about the innermost part of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, Only the high priest could enter that portion of the tabernacle once a year. And even he didn't go in without being consecrated, without very special preparation. And all of that is because, why? Because God is holy, and he is not to be approached without being prepared or being consecrated. And even then, there will be distance between God and the people of Israel. So, what this might say to us is that we shouldn't take our relationship with God lightly. We should enter into His presence not so much with outward preparation, but with inward consecration. Whether it be in our worship or prayer or even here at the Lord's table, we should come into the Lord's presence with hearts of humility with repentance, thanksgiving, and a deep sense of reverence and awe for who God is and what he has done for us. I sometimes wonder if we take our God, our relationship with him for granted, and we are somewhat cavalier in our attitude about him. But when we read about how God came to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, I think that we can see that he is in no way common and we are in no way on par with him, no way at all. Verse 16, 18 and 19, it says, For you have, excuse me, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast." so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. You know, I can only imagine what the Israelites experienced that day The Bible tells us there was a trumpet blast that grew louder and louder and louder. There was powerful thunder and lightning, a dense dark cloud of smoke that encompassed the entire mountaintop. You know, I think about that, and I think about how that must have appeared and and what they might have thought of God on that particular day. You know, I often hear people tossing around the adjective awesome, you know, just so casually and anymore, everything is awesome. And matter of fact, that word has really just kind of lost its true meaning. I was just thinking about uh, a couple of years ago when I was still working. You know, we were in the hangar and I was working at the front of the airplane and there's all kind of hoses and cords that run through there uh, that support, you know, the work on the aircraft. Well, this little cleaning lady, she comes and she's a... wanting to cross all of this stuff and she's got this cart with her cleaning supplies in it and because of the cords and hoses and things like that she can't cross there she would have to walk all the way around the aircraft to get to the other side well me and a a co-worker were working there and so we just we saw her coming and so we picked up the hoses and stuff like that and so she could just walk through with her cart and she turned around and said you guys are awesome I said, really? <laughs> I mean, that was my thought. Awesome. I mean, you know, it was just common courtesy. That's not awesome. God is awesome. What happened at Mount Sinai, that was awesome. But what we did was nothing. It was just common courtesy. But that's just kind of the way it is anymore. We just toss that word around like it's nothing. And here in Exodus chapter 19, he, God just really gives us a glimpse. This is just a glimpse of just how awesome he is by descending on the top of the mountain in just a powerful display of who he is and what he can do. And because he is holy, because he is God, and he is not to be taken lightly, he says, nobody come close. Don't come close. You prepare yourselves. You get ready. You sanctify yourselves just to... Get close, but don't touch it. Don't even come near the edge of it. I want to close this morning just by briefly looking at a few verses in Hebrews 12 because I think it's significant. Uh, Terry talked a little bit about it in his class this morning, but throughout the Hebrew letter, the writer is contrasting the old covenant that God made with the people of Israel and the new covenant that is ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the covenant that we live under here and now. He wants those Christians to whom he's writing to know that the new covenant offers a better priesthood, a better high priest who offers better sacrifices, and the new covenant offers better promises than the old covenant that the children of Israel made with God at Mount Sinai. And then he draws it all to a climax in chapter 12 with a contrast between Israel at Mount Sinai and you and I as the Israel of God today, as children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that spiritual Mount Zion, which he calls the heavenly Jerusalem, which I believe is really just our dwelling, our presence in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. He says, For you have not come to what might be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses even trembled with fear. He says, in contrast, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable angels in festival gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hallelujah this morning for those words. You know, if this passage tells us nothing else, it should convey to us that in Jesus Christ, we have entered into a better covenant, and we are citizens of a kingdom that is far more glorious than anything that Israel could have ever imagined. At Mount Sinai, you remember what we've read already. There was fire, there was darkness and gloom, there was thunder and lightning, and the voice of God thundered at the people, and the people didn't even want to hear it. They told Moses, you go talk to God, and you come back and tell us what he said. They weren't even allowed to approach the mountain because the glory of God was there. But notice the contrast. The Hebrew writer says, "But at Mount Zion, that is the New Jerusalem," he calls it, the kingdom of which you and I are a part, we stand in the very presence of God and the very presence of our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a distance, you see, a difference. They were told to be very distant from God, and we are in his very presence in this new covenant. There is no darkness, no trembling, and no fear, but instead, notice he says that there is a joyful celebration with the angels and the saints of all ages. God has come to dwell with us and in us through his spirit, and that's worth celebrating, beloved. And that's the contrast. Don't come close. Now God is right here in us and with us. What a wonderful difference. How much better is our covenant? The Hebrew writer sums it all up by telling us what should be our proper response to being invited into this amazing kingdom and this amazing relationship with Almighty God. Hebrews 12, 28, and 29, the writer says, Therefore let us be grateful For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. He says, for our God, he is a consuming fire. He's the same God, just as powerful. He's still just as consuming fire now as he was then. Oh, but our covenant is so much better, and the relationship is so much better because of what Jesus has done. Lesson's yours. Thank you so much, God bless you.